Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home. Support comes from the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Black students take on a disproportionate amount of debt, nearly twice the load, to fund their education. Thurgood Marshall College Fund is on a mission to end the student loan crisis by creating scholarship programs for any student with an ambitious spirit. Our scholarship programs are primarily merit-based designed to assist students with any portion of their account balance that requires self-pay or a loan. At Thurgood Marshall College Fund, we believe anyone striving to be someone should be championed by everyone. More information is available at whosnext.tmcf.org. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money-Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money-Making Conversations Masterclass. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. I want to hear from you today. Like I always say, this is a podcast that's built for you, a radio show that's built for you. So many different platforms you can view this form of entertainment. I recognize that we all have different definitions of success for you. It may be the size of your paycheck. Minds inspire you to accomplish your goals and live your very best life. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. People always talk about their gifts. If you have a gift or a purpose, 
leave with your gifts and don't let your friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. We're always discussing how to overcome the odds in life. My guest today is a perfect guest in discussing that matter. His name is Ben Jealous. Ben is a New York Times bestselling author, scholar, journalist, civil rights leader, and philanthropist. Currently serves as president and CEO of People for the American Way and professor of the practice University of Pennsylvania. He was formerly, when I met him, president and CEO of the NAACP. The youngest one at the time and great leader, man. I always uh, find great time and great conversations when I was managing Steve Harvey at the time. Director of the Human Rights Program at Amnesty International USA and executive director of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. He is on the show to discuss his new book, Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free. Wow. People should always remember that. Please welcome the Money Making Conversation Masterclass, Ben Jealous. How you doing, sir? It's always good to see you, sir. Great to be, great to be with you. Hey, Ben, you know, when I read that title, you know, you look at how society, you, you look how people are pushing back on trying to understand our history and saying, hey, you know, you know, our children may be, feel uncomfortable learning about America and how it was really built. And then, but information, it was so much information I took from your book. And I'm going to just say this in a very comical way. Because there were so many lanes of, 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 of ethnicity, or is they white, they half white, they black, they black white. This is not a book, ladies and gentlemen, that you skim through. Because you might not know <laughs> if you skim past this person was white, this person was black, this person was. So you really, really, really taught me a lesson on this book, Ben. I better read every page very, very carefully. I know that wasn't a trick move, but that was a detail of how you would put it in perspective racial understanding of this country and how the races have intermingled over the years, correct? Yeah, so, you know, I was actually trying to decode some of my grandma would always say, which is, <laughs> that happens to be the title of the book, say, never forget our people were always free. And, well, three of her four grandparents were born into slavery, and the fourth one, my grandma's sister would tell you, had raped one of my grandmother's grandmothers. So, my question to her was like, well, who was free? The rapist? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Right, 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 right. But the funny thing, you know, our elders can say things and we hear them say it. And we sort of, we internalize the sound and we internalize the way it feels. And then we say it without critically thinking about the meaning of the words. And my grandmother's grandmother said that. Her mother said that. As far as we can tell, the grandmothers before that, I saw my sister start to repeat it. And as a, as a civil rights guy, I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what do you mean? Henry Louis Gates Jr. helped me trace my grandmother's maternal line where the saying kept echoing down. Right. And then we found the place where it made sense. In the very beginning, the first woman to come in my grandmother's maternal line to America, the, the matriarch of our maternal line, mm -hmm. was an Afro-Polynesian pirate from Madagascar. <laughs> only 17 slave ships ever come to what is now the United States from Madagascar. Right. Nine of them land in Virginia, eight land in New York. All but one of them was piloted by a known European pirate. Mm. These were not traditional slave ships. These were ships from a pirate war. And when the European pirates would win a battle, they would occasionally enslave the able-bodied people in the village and ship them to America to be sold. Mm -hmm. And well, if the women kept repeating this, you go all the way back to the first one in the United States, 
what else would a pirate woman say to her children and grandchildren born into slavery? But never forget our people were always free. And she and how would she say it? She would say it as a call to insurrection. A people who knew that their people had been free are people who would then decide that freedom must be their destiny and that they would fight for it. And so this was a battle cry right. just handed down through the generations of my family. We know um, battle cry. You know, uh, I come from inner city, six sisters, uh, two brothers, both my parents. Uh, one was a truck driver, third grade education. Mom graduated from high school, had an option to go to college, but she had nine kids. And so uh, raised me as best as she can. I think she did a good job, all of us. When we look look at the perspective of how African-Americans or people of color are perceived in this country, what is your take on that by the the media? Yes, you know, it hurts everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, uh, prior to the civil rights movement, images of the poor in America were of white people. After the civil rights movement, one of the ironic things that changed was virtually all of the images in the media of poor people are back black and brown people. It hurts black and brown people because, you know, we we walk into a room and people assume that we're an extension of the headline or the photograph they just saw in the newspaper. Right. It also hurts a lot of poor white people because when the images shift, shifted, so did public support for anything public public housing, public education, public health, all of a sudden the imagination is it just helps black and brown people. And if most of the biggest group of citizens are white, they're like, well, why should we support that? That's not about us. And yet the biggest group of poor has always been whites. Absolutely. And, you know, so the racism makes the poverty in our community hyper visible and it makes the poverty in the white community invisible and both groups suffer. That is absolutely the truth. I always say that, you know, you know, you 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 popularizing a stereotype, but you're hurting the real problem. And that's what you're just stating right there. Well put. And I'll give you an example of that. You know, I'm from Baltimore. My mom grew up in the housing projects there. And a lot of my cousins live not too far there from. And in Baltimore, for like 80 years, the only discussion of opiate addiction was about heroin. And heroin addicts were stereotyped as black. And the attitude was lock them up. Right. And then sheriffs in the Mid-South, the Midwest and other places in the in the early 2000s got increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that they kept um, catching bodies. You know, they kept picking up corpses of people overdosing on opiates and nobody was talking about increasing rehab. Nobody was talking about dealing with the addiction epidemic. And so they started publishing the faces of the corpses, the people who were dying in their community. Mm-hmm. Well, the majority were white. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the public policy conversation shifted. And in my book, Never Forget We're Always Free, Never Forget Our People We're Always Free, I go, you know, I talk about this. And suddenly the policy debate went from like 80 years of nonsense trying to treat addicts like criminals to the common sense was give them more rehab. We have to deal with this as a health crisis. Again, because the full face of the problem was visible. Cool. I'm speaking to Ben Jealous. His book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. Before I go back into the book, you know, when I met you and you know, I remember I was always setting up interviews on the Steve Harvey Morning Show in regards to interviewing you, getting the word out about the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Um, voting and everything, yep. Absolutely. Um, when you look at social media and technology, has technology helped uh, the NAACP in your eyes or just because it's always, because the, the title has always been an issue, colored people. 
And some people say that title has, has, has seen its time. When you look at where the NAACP, because it definitely still serves a purpose. It still is our primary voice when we, yeah. when, when um, civil rights issues are being challenged. Who's the first to challenge it? But the NAACP. So when you look at technology, has technology helped position uh, the NAACP in modern times? You know, I um, when I started, the NAACP had 30,000 people on its mobile list. No, sorry, we had 5,000. We had 5,000 text, you know, phone numbers we could organize people with. Yes. We had 175,000 email addresses. Mm-hmm. When I left, we had 1.4 million email addresses. We had 430,000 mobile phone numbers. And technology definitely makes it easier to organize. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, uh, Facebook, which works on algorithms, um, has become a massive rabbit hole uh, for for conspiracy theorists. Mm. Uh, and it has helped to multiply hate groups and combine them with each other. So you, now you have Al-Qaeda talking to white supremacists, for instance, and you have the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the old KGB, it's a new acronym, uh, fomenting white supremacists. So technology, I'd say, is a mixed bag. But as an organizer, it's made it a lot easier. You know, when I was with the black newspapers, I helped bring 80 of them online. Eight were online when I started. Two years later, we, we brought 80 online. Mm-hmm. So I'm all for embracing technology to spread good information in our community, to organize people better. But we do have to recognize, though, that social media and, and the algorithms have definitely made it easier for the hate groups to, to multiply. Right. And we need, and frankly, the companies need to shut that, that aspect down. They've got to figure out. Uh, how to stop spreading hate. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, hate in some ways, I always tell people, you know, when you have the algorithm, that's what people say, you know, yeah. w- w- succeeded and allowed, tr- some people have said the reason President Trump was uh, yeah. elected because he had the algorithm to be able to talk to yeah. the people he needed to talk to convince him, convince them of this rhetoric or these stereotyped information that basically in some ways out of fear they voted for him because they didn't. They thought they was about this was about to happen if he wasn't elected president. But you have a well. You but, to, you know, I gotta tell you, man. Like the the context for authoritarian movements in our society is always poverty. Yes, it is. You know, we 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 have let too many black folks and too many white folks and entire communities and even sections of states. And you and I know a lot of those sections of states well. They're in Texas, they're in Louisiana, they're in Mississippi, they're in Alabama, and they're in New York State, they're in Pennsylvania, they're in California too. Mm-hmm. And there's entire communities that feel like they are forgotten. Right. And, and white men who don't have college degrees feel like the Democratic Party doesn't even think about them. And black men without college degrees often feel the same way too. And so if we really want to um, stop the growth of authoritarian movements, hate movements, and those who would turn our democracy into a mockery, we have to get back to what Dr. King was calling all of us to do when he was assassinated. He was not assassinated leading a desegregation battle. He was assassinated leading the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, you know, you know the, uh, the COINTEL program, the FBI, right. wasn't just about... Uh, he said, prevent the rise of a black messiah. They weren't worried about a black person leading black people. They were fine with that. They were most worried about a black person leading the poor. Uh, and that's why there was celebration in so many FBI offices when Dr. King was assassinated. Wow. 
You know, um, information is, I'm going to let everybody know, speaking of Ben Jealous, uh, we're talking about his book, uh, Never Forget Our People Are Always Free, in reference to who we are in a world that tends to say that you're limited based on the color of your skin. That's always been the challenge. Yeah. You know, you have a light complexion tone in your book. You know, you talk about different experiences. Some of them are, you know, when you look at it, you know, it can be perceived as humorous. I, I talked to you before the interview. We talked about the Renaissance Festival. And I, my wife and I, we go to the Renaissance Festival. We dress up and we buy these giant turkey legs. And and we, for some reason, we thought we was fitting in. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> and then you say, hey, this is not the Renaissance Festival that you're used to. This was a gathering. And at that gathering, you found, you 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 found the it was a profound moment because because you found the relative, and in a part of the country that you didn't expect, you're just going there just to be social. Now, when you get to you talk about Gates, you know that's what he does. So when you were sitting down, you knew exactly what he was doing, and you wanted to get the information. When you found out in that gathering, sitting next to somebody, that had to be an eye opener. And as you said, you gulped on your drink several times. Yeah, no, I mean, I literally, bro, you know, <laughs> I sit down next to this this couple. He's younger than her. That well, it looked like maybe 15 years. Like, that was the most interesting thing, I guess. So I started yeah, taking it. I was like, where are you all from? Right. He's like, Los Gatos. I'm like, no, ain't nobody from there. That was an apple orchard when I was a kid. Where are you from? He's like, I'm from Minnesota. Where are your wife from? Southern Virginia. Where in Southern Virginia? Petersburg. Well, my family's from Petersburg. What's her What's her family names? And I'm like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little buzzed at this point after a cocktail session. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and he says, well, her maiden name is Bland. Well, my grandmother's maiden name is Bland. So I cut him off. I say, Bland? He goes, yeah, Bland. He goes, why? So, well, brother, I don't know how to put this, but I think your wife's family used to own my mama's family. Wow. And then they switch seats. And I'm looking at this lady, and she's staring Wait, at hold me. Hold on, hold on, You said, what did I do? You said you think that your wife's family may have owned your mom's family. <laughs> yeah, I said to him, I think your wife's family, and you know, he's from Minnesota, so he has, he ain't prepared, you know? He basically says, baby, we got to switch seats now. You know, black <laughs> and, and so they switch seats, and she looks at me, right? Right. And I'm looking at her, I'm like, wow, you look like my grandma. She's looking at me like, and she goes, Come here, baby, give me a kiss. I always knew I had black family. And I'm like, this woman's like 80 years old. You know, I'm like, it's like, give her a hug, kiss her on the cheek. Right, 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 right. And and Henry Louis Gates Jr. years later would uh verify. Would, um, <laughs> would uh, get our DNA and prove that we 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 descend from the same plantation owner. We uh -huh. both descend from Thomas Jefferson's grandma. We were related a couple different ways. Uh, should we include uh, Robert Robert uh, E. Lee? Robert E. Lee, yeah. Man. We, you know, can we let that slide in this conversation, small. Ben? Do we let that slide in this conversation, you know? Thomas Jefferson, too. <laughs> Robert E. Lee, that's a different conversation now. Talk about well, that I mean, realization. You know, well, that was the thing, right? So we're both members of the Bland family, and so I'm writing the book, and I'm like, oh, let me just go on Wikipedia. The Blands are one of the founding families of Virginia, they signed the Declaration of Independence, all that stuff. So it was like, let me just go on there and see who else descends from the Bland family. <laughs> and I see Robert E. Lee, and I'm like, I'm the former president of the NAACP and the former head of the Confederate Army. Was my cousin? Wow. But it got deeper, man. It got deeper. Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. So Richard Yates Bland, who was the man who owned my grandmother's grandfather mm -hmm. and my grandmother's great-grandfather and their families... Um, has one paragraph in his will 
protecting my grandmother's great-grandfather. And it's the only enslaved person that he mentions in his will. And he has multiple sentences defining what the rest of his life shall be like, clearly protecting him. Right. And between that and my DNA, Henry Luce Gates Jr. concluded, your great-grandfather was the owner's older brother, and the owner knew it. He was older brother by six years, older half-brother. They would have grown up in the same nursery. They would have understood that they shared blood, that they shared a father. Mm-hmm. And the younger brother, who was the owner, or the older brother, was dying, and he wanted to protect his brother. Right. He wanted to protect his brother. The, you know, it was, it didn't really, we're taught that race is a wall. We're taught that, you know, plantations uh, were these terribly inhumane places, and they were. Nothing really prepares you to find a slave owner protecting his brother who was enslaved in a will. And then you realize, you know, that's your great-great-grandfather. And then you realize um, that he knew that. And the Blands were big supporters of the Confederacy, the white Blands, and they were very proud that Robert E. Lee was their cousin. So when my grandmother's great-grandfather and her grandfather and their you know, entire family walked out of slavery in the last day of the Civil War, right after the Battle of Appomattox, they walked out knowing that the man who just surrendered was their cousin. Wow. And, and the question is, what impact does that have on a people? And I would say, because it goes back to what we used earlier, hubris. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because they come right out of slavery and they ultimately take over the state. My grandmother's grandfather, the son you know, of uh, the great-grandfather who was the brother of the owner, the nephew of the owner, 15 years later is the head of the Black Republicans in Virginia. He's in his early 30s. Uh, the um, Hayes-Tilden Compromise was signed. That ended Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. That's how the Black soldiers got shifted out to the West to become Buffalo soldiers, right. you know, fighting the Indians. And um, uh, and yet, Jim Crow hadn't started yet. There were still a large number of blacks in the legislature. Absolutely. And the plantation owners said, we're going to shut down these public schools. And the poor whites rebelled, saying, like, like heck you are. I mean, I know that these black-dominated governments started them, but our kids benefited from them. And he ends up joining up with a former Confederate general. They build a populist movement, multiracial, take over the Virginia government. Former Confederate soldiers, formerly enslaved men, take over the Virginia government. They expand Virginia Tech to make it the working man's rival the UVA. They create the first public HBCU, Virginia State, first public south of the Mason-Dixon, I should say, uh, uh, Virginia State. They save the public schools for all the children. They abolish the whipping post. And here's the key part. They abolish the poll tax. Mm. And why is that important? Because... You know, less than 20 years later, the poll tax would be put into the into the Constitution of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And we're always told that that was like an attack on black power. And it was mm-hmm. it would disenfranchised 80 percent of blacks, but it also disenfranchised 50 percent of whites. In other words, it outlawed the populist party that my grandmother's grandfather and uh, Edward David Bland was his name and Robert, e., excuse me, and William B. Mahone, the right. protege Robert E. Lee had created. Uh, man, did, did they ever teach you in school that like former Confederates and former slaves got together and created a political party that took over multiple states, Virginia and North Carolina? Heck no. No. And that's what made me <laughs> mad about these statements. Dave Chappelle, uh, 
we met and uh, became really, really good friends. And uh, uh, several years ago, I was in, uh, hadn't saw Dave in about 15 years. And uh, I was in L.A. and I was at the, outside the Four Seasons Hotel and got in and somebody ran in and said, hey, hey, somebody want to see you. And it was Dave Chappelle. And when you, when you talk about it, my relationship with Dave Chappelle started from a comedic standpoint. We did yeah. HBO Def Comedy Jam. Now I look at the youngest member of the NAACP. Who, who leads the pack of change. You see what Dave Chappelle is today. He's a voice of reason. He's a voice of honesty. What is y'all relationship all about? Friendship. His, his dad and my dad were best friends. His father's my godfather, was my godfather, God, God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. Our fathers are both civil rights organizers. Mm-hmm. And Dave was sent to me a bit like Paddington Bear. Mm-hmm. I've been in New York for a year. Mm-hmm. His father was deeply worried because Dave would be the first man in the family to go, sorry, the first man in the family not to go to college since slavery. Mm. Is all the men in his family had been educated. Dave is named for Bishop William David Chappelle, who's kind of like the Paul of the AME church. Okay. Uh, great expectation for men in that family. His father had gone to Brown University at age 15. And I had been in New York a year before Dave, even though we're only six months apart. And he said, look, I want you to look out for my son in New York, and I want you to tell him how much you like college. And so he knows it's an option if comedy doesn't work. You and I probably came across each other at the Boston Comedy Club. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, was the, I was the brother. Everybody thought I was Puerto Rican. Though, when you like <laughs> in New York, you're just Puerto Rican. So on the Chitlin circuit of comedy, the still brothers will come up like, Chappelle's old Puerto Rican bodyguard. Good to see you, brother. <laughs> you know, I just take it. I'm proud. You know, fine. It's good. I love it. So, you, know, you know, the first time Dave and I hung out as teenagers, we were 18, and I watched Dave step into the circle uh, down near the Boston Comedy Club in, in Washington Square Park, where Charlie Barnett would make all his money. Amazing, you know? Charlie and, Barnett. He's, this is outdoor comedy, people. And that's what I always tell people. People say, Dave Chappelle, because Dave Chappelle did comedy outdoors, which is mean yes. people could walk by you, and you had to stop them. And Charlie Burnett, God bless his soul, uh, one of the brilliant street comedians who made his way into mainstream, who passed away way before his time. Yeah, and so Dave takes over the circle in Washington Square Park, and you know, get an August day, 200 tourists. Dave made 750 bucks in 15 minutes. <laughs> and I, long story short, said, man, don't worry about it. I'm going to call your dad. I'll tell him everything. But okay, I called my <laughs> godfather. I said, look, I just watched your son make 750 bucks a park in 15 minutes doing nothing illegal, just bringing joy. Everything's going to be okay. And so, you know, I've always been like a, a consigliere of Dave ever since, you know, when he really uh, he needs to figure something out in business or whatever, we put heads together and we figure it out. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on Money Making Conversation Master. I'm going to tell you something, Ben. We, we never talked, you know, we're just doing our service. And part of my service yeah. is bringing your voice to the community. And uh, this book is amazing. I never forget our people were always free. Written by Ben Jealous. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations Masterclass. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. It's time to accomplish what others deem impossible. Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown Jackson became the first black woman to serve on the country's highest court. This historical moment comes 55 years after Justice Thurgood Marshall's confirmation in 1967. Thurgood Marshall College Fund provides HBCU and PBI students with the tools to harness their greatness. We believe anyone striving to be someone should be championed by everyone. Learn more at whosnext.tmcf.org. Education, science, and technology. 
Historical black colleges and universities create change. They enroll 20% of African-American students. And despite constituting only 3% of four-year colleges in the country, HBCUs have produced 80% of black judges, 50% of black lawyers, 50% of black doctors, 40% of black engineers. HBCUs represent black excellence. If you attend or are an alumnus of an HBCU, we want to hear about your story. The My HBCU Story Digital Library will allow current HBCU students and alumni to share their stories. Registration is open to everyone. More information is available at hbcucollegeday.com. Click My HBCU Story. Next, you can upload a photo. The photo can be recent or from when you attended your HBCU. Then, share your your academic or social experience at your HBCU and how attending an HBCU changed your life. We also want to hear stories if you pledged a fraternity or sorority. The goal is to use your My HBCU story to promote and uplift the HBCU brand. Your HBCU prepared you for success, and now we want everyone to read about your Black excellence. More information is available at hbcucollegeday.com. You can click My HBCU story to share your story. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversation Masterclass with your daily minute of inspiration. My guest today is the man, the comedian, the legend, George Wallace. He talks about the importance of changing with the times and innovating. The yes. reason I came to Twitter was because I had, uh, I just wanted to be a part. You got to keep stay relevant you got to do what i love the young people what they're doing right uh, some people are not even going to television anymore right uh, there's a comedian named country wayne that's my boy now, nobody know who the hell he is but through social media he sells out everywhere yeah with three million social media how to do things mm-hmm. like that you got to change with the times so mm-hmm. that's why i'm on tweeting and uh, i'm on i'm going i'm going to instagram i'm gonna do more on instagram I love TikTok. I just love what the young people are doing, and I'm trying to stay young with them. Listen to this full interview with George Wallace. It's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com. Now let's return to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. My guest is Lenore Anderson. She is the co-founder and president of Alliance for Safety and Justice, ASJ, one of the nation's largest safety and justice reform advocacy organizations. ASJ works with public officials and grassroots partners to advance smart public policy and sponsors crime survivors for safety and justice, the nation's largest organizing program for victims of crime. She's also the founder of California for Safety and Justice, where this was a flagship, whereas an attorney with extensive experience working to reform criminal justice and public safety systems she's on the show today to discuss a new book if you're watching me i'll be holding it in my hand in their names the untold story of victim rights mass incarceration and the future of public safety please welcome to money making conversation Masterclass, lenore anderson how you doing lenore ai might be the most important new computer technology ever it's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested so buckle up The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. 
So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, it, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street. You know, I have to ask, and then the, and the, then the invitation has to be accepted, and and then I have to get the book. I have to do my homework, and and, and, and so I won't be asking these generic questions that don't lead to anything, and then you leave, you and then you walk away and did he even read my book? Yes, I did, because I think that when I, when I bring a guest on like you who has something to say, not saying that my guests don't have anything to say, but you can read a book. Like, let's put it this way. If you watch Game of Thrones, you pretty much know it's going to be some dragons, okay? When you read a book like this, I walked away realizing I didn't understand the way society works. I was thoroughly educated. In some ways, I was saddened by my own personal ignorance because there are victims of crime who are walking around today and don't understand that they can go get help. That is why... When I got the book, I was even more enthused about interviewing you. Tell us your perspective. Well, it's so great to hear your reflections on it. So like you described, I'm an attorney and a a policy reform advocate, and I wanted to write this book because I have seen the way these myths about public safety in the United States really prevent victims from getting help and really prevent real criminal justice reform from coming about. You know, we uh, work with survivors of crime all across the country, and we uh, bring groups of survivors to meet with state legislators in capitals all across the country, states as diverse as, you know, California, Mm -hmm. Texas. And when we sit down with legislators, they're always so shocked to hear that most victims of crime don't actually want all this mass incarceration They really want rehabilitation, crime prevention, and real help after experiencing harm. So I wanted to tell that story and try and help shake up this conversation on criminal justice in the country. Well, okay, it's really interesting because when you're talking about criminal justice, you usually talk about a person of color, usually a person that 
looks like me. We are the number, you know, we fill these jail cells, these prisons at a rapid rate. I think your number was one out of three. When it became Latino, I think the number was one out of six. And so why should you care about me? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I started down this path um, kind of uncovering the realities of racial inequality in Americans, uh, America's public safety system. You know, when I was a teenager, it was the 80s and 90s in California. I was uh, getting in trouble. And, um, you know, what res- the response to me was very different than what was happening at that time. You know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a, you know, sort of tough on crime movement. There was this war on youth, especially in California. But here I am as a white female getting in trouble. Police let me go home. Teachers let me pass classes. That let's slow this down. Miss Anderson, Miss Anderson, you getting in trouble. You getting in trouble. The the young lady I'm looking at, you look like um, you as close to a PTA looking person I've seen. Okay, and you use the word trouble tied to your name. I I don't believe it. I don't believe it. What kind of trouble were you getting in? Let's stop the brakes. Bump the brakes here. Lenore Anderson got in trouble. I want to hear what trouble you got in that the police said. Go on, girl. Don't worry about it. You know what? I'm probably typical, right? Real typical teenager, right? You know, we're talking uh, cutting school. We're talking shoplifting, you know, getting in trouble, Uh underage drinking, Uh you know, marijuana, that kind of thing. And those are those are the realities, right? The realities are those exact things that I was doing on my sort of stumbling towards adulthood, right. right? We're landing kids of color in jails across this country at astronomical rates. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I was, um, you know, given so much grace and so many chances to try again. And it wasn't until after I graduated law school a decade later, right? And mm-hmm. I'm sitting in courtrooms, sitting with parents of incarcerated youth, talking to kids who are facing solitary confinement, getting pepper sprayed by guards, you know, and I was listening to the stories of these young people and realizing really the main difference between what they started out doing and what I was doing was how the system responded, right, around race and class. This is a system that has, it's not just who gets incarcerated that's racially biased, it's also which victims get help that's racially biased. There's right. racial bias at top to bottom of this whole system. And when I came to realize that, I knew that I had to uh, do something to advance racial equality. Right, right. Now, and thank you for, because um, a lot of people see things and they get frustrated by the process and say, hey, that ain't my lane or that's not the experience I want. I don't have to deal with those issues. Now, it all goes back to your background. What, 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 what along the way? You know, like I said, I, I always tell people uh, some of the things I get in college, I probably could have been in jail. You know, because we all do stupid things. We all do things that that, that you go back and go. You know, some all somebody to do is just stop me. I, I always tell this story. I remember I was uh, in college. I was pledging in fraternity, and and when you pledge in fraternity, the big brothers they always want you to get stuff for them. You know, they didn't give you money. You just had to come back with what they asked. And I had a little little sports car in college. It was a Fiat X19, and so the, the trunk was was in the front of the car. And I remember this big brother told me, he said, look, I want some plants for my apartment. 
I couldn't tell them I didn't have any money. And I can always remember I went and found this place and and got these plants. And uh, and so the plants were so big that they were sticking out of my trunk and basically blocking my windshield. I couldn't even see, really. So a cop could have easily have stopped me. And and mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be, I'd have had no receipt for those plants. And I could have been arrested. It could have changed the direction of my life. Because that was some silly thing that I did because I was trying to accommodate the needs or the incredible demands of a big brother to join this organization. So that, that so I can relate to what you're saying. And, but but then there are some people like me. I had um, role models. I had people who believed in me. I had a, a, a circle of people. But then there are people out there who don't have anybody. And that's really what we are talking about in this book. The people who are perceived failures, people who are perceived um, targets. And guess what? They become that target. People take aim on them. That's what came out of the book a lot. And not saying that's negative, but it needs to be told. And, you know, these are policy choices, right? I mean, you know, the reason that there's not enough youth mentors, the reason that there's not enough mental health crisis assistance responders or trauma recovery centers for victims, the reason these these kinds of solutions that would help people not be alone is because we put all the money in these bloated prisons, right? You went for too long. You know, in this country, the policy choice was, hey, we've got a problem with crime. That's a very serious problem. We've got to deal with it. We're going to solve that problem by building up this huge, enormous set of criminal justice bureaucracies. And we're going to put all the money in these prisons, mass surveillance, mass incarceration. Well, there's a real world impact of that choice. And the impact is None of the kind of supports that you're describing, right? We're talking about solutions on the ground in communities that are operating on a dime, that have long waiting lists. And that's because the safety money that our country has doled out has gone too much to the wrong place. Absolutely. And um, when you talk about the wrong places, it's called tax dollars and tax dollars. And and the people using those tax dollars create big business. And prison is big business. And uh, and and. That's a, that's a lot of the things that people aren't aware of. You know, as, as a person who looks at you and talk about different career paths, you know, my career, you know, I wanted to be a, a doctor, but then I couldn't get past physics. So, you know, so I eventually got my degree in mathematics. And, and, but, but I took a course in college, sociology, that changed my life, just really changed my perspective and really educated me on just life in general. You know, it were two courses that really... I took them by accident. One, one course was said it was easy. That's why I took the sociology. And the other course, I was supposed to take Texas history, and I wound up taking Western European history. And I realized, and I earned about the Roman Catholicism and Lutherism and Calvinism. And I went, wow, Europe was pretty violent. Okay, it's a pretty violent country. And then, but those are career paths that got me here. Please explain your career path, because it had to be certain things along the way that adjusted your personality to allow you to be the person who's in pursuit of justice reform. Yeah, well, you know, I I really lucked out. Um, you know, I kind of fell into um, social justice advocacy, you know, after I kind of barely graduated from high school. I actually didn't go to college Uh, But then I had uh, a health problem and needed health insurance. My dad, who had wanted me to go to college, says, 
you'll be covered. You're over 18, but you'll still be covered if you're a college student. So I went to the local junior college in San Jose, California, and didn't expect to really find college as fascinating and interesting as I did, Mm -hmm. you know, and I start taking these classes, you know, everything from psychology, like you sociology, and it helped me see the world in a different light. And then I was, you know, able to do well in junior college and then go on to Berkeley and and then law school. But it was really sort of um, happenstance that I found myself in new environments. And I'm so grateful for that. You know, you're really interesting in a good way. I say that, you know, she she just casually says, you know, she didn't really want to go to college. Then she went to Berkeley. She went to junior college because of medical reasons to get insurance. Then she was in Berkeley and then she was in law school. Like, you know, that that leap. Like she just she's just like, you know, <laughs> you know, she she I just love talking to people like you because you're so humble and you're so nonchalant about the work ethic that you put in and then the gifts that you have. And then now you take those gifts and you're sharing it by trying to change people's lives. And you're doing it every day. When you wrote this book, what angered you the most about the research? Because you knew some of it. But when you do more research, you find things you go, this is disgusting. Yeah. You know, um, we have been my organization. Alliance for Safety and Justice, we've been uh, organizing to reform criminal justice and public safety for a decade. And I wanted to take a step back and write this book because I knew there was a story to be told about how victims have actually been hurt by the very things that uh, American politics say victims want, all this mass incarceration, tough justice. But then when I started researching the history, you're right, there are so many things that I found shocking and devastating you know, victims of crime in New Orleans, Louisiana, getting arrested. The victims of domestic violence, human trafficking, getting arrested to compel their testimony in court when the perpetrators are getting released on bail. That's an example. And by the way, all the victims who are arrested in that kind of situation, all low-income women of color, that's what's happening is that's kind of treatment. You know, another example, Cleveland, Ohio, you know, this is one of the many cities across the country in the 80s and 90s that got all this federal money to build up the police departments and mostly focus on drugs and theft and sort of petty stuff. They're arresting people left and right. Meanwhile, that same city is sitting on rape kits that have never been tested. Right. So when I started really unpacking this reality, it's it just sort of, it became obvious to me that disregard for victims, especially low-income victims and victims of color, right. is the two sides of the same coin. That's the same thing as mass incarceration. It's one systematic approach. No, it's really I don't know if that makes sense. No, no. It's, it's, life is, is, is filled with irony, you know, because um, during the three strikes, because you talk about it in your book, the three strikes and you're out basically. That occurred under the Clinton administration. And then you have who also was involved at that time was our now president, Joe Biden. Okay. And and within the community, you know, it's always been a feeling that, you know, Bill Clinton is the black person's president, but he's responsible for many black people being in jail because of that law, which sounds very simple, sound very, you know, it will fix a system, but it, again, 
hurt the very people that will always be victimized, low income and people of color. And then you have Joe Biden today who needed the black vote from the very people that he backed a bill on. That type of irony plays itself over and over again, and it keeps coming back on the communities that need the most resources, that need the most support. And when you read a book like yours, you know, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm drawn to tears, but I'm also very mad. I'm mad because Mm -hmm. the people's lives who have been destroyed can't be recovered. The people who are victims Mm -hmm. of crime, and I think that that's what we're about to go to now because we're not talking about incarceration now. We need to also talk about the people who are actually victims because we're not spending the money in the right direction. Am I correct? That's right. How do we fix that, that, Ms. Anderson? Well, you know, I mean, a a lot of people are not aware of how few victims of crime get help after um, getting hurt by violence. You know, and I I talk about it in the book, you know, we passed in this country, we passed laws in every state um, uh, for victim compensation programs and, and relocation assistance programs. And yet nine out of 10 victims get no help. They don't get nine out of 10 victims of violent crime in the U S get no compensation, no relocation assistance, no accommodations at work or school. They face extreme stress, you know, in response to what has happened. And despite the laws on the books, it's not translating to real help to victims And that needs to be uncovered. That story of how few victims get help needs to be told because in right in there is also a set of solutions around public safety. If we could help survivors heal from trauma and get uh, stabilized, we would actually be stopping the cycle of crime at the same time. So that's part of why we're so focused on helping alleviate the trauma that victims experience is because we're trying to heal communities. Right. I'm speaking to Lenore Anderson. Her book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. You can buy this book today. And I, I underline a chapter, uh, I guess a paragraph. You said, this book, which you wrote, argues that unearthing and resetting the relationship between victims of crime and the criminal justice system is required to replace mass incarceration. Now, you know, the, the average person go, what's she talking about? Put these folks in jail and go on about your business. So you know, I'm sure you get that a lot. You know, I'm sure people look at you like, you know, she, you know she's one of them, uh, you know, do-gooders. You know, she's a dreamer, pipe dream people. You know, how do you overcome that? How do you come to skepticism? How do you come back? Because you get more doors slammed in your face probably than me, okay? Because you try to do right. And a lot of people don't care about doing right. They just want to vote. Or they trying to raise some taxes, or they try to get home. And you're just trying to get the job done right. So you, super dreamer, how do you overcome it? And how have you been able to win? Because you are winning, too. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of success um, talking to people about the truth about what happens. You know, when you ask most voters, you know, first of all, we all want public safety. That is something, that's a value we all hold dear. The question is how to get there. Mm-hmm. And when you ask voters, which do you think is more effective for public safety, right? Incarcerating our way to safety, arresting our way to safety, or building strong communities. 
voters across the political spectrum are going to say building strong communities. Well, if that's what we all know intuitively, right, that it, you actually have to invest in crime prevention and rehabilitation and crisis assistance, then why are we not doing that? And mm-hmm. we're not doing it because there's this myth and it's the myth that you just laid out that like, hey, let's just throw all these people in jail and then we'll be safe. Right. Well, that myth has failed us for 40 years. That has been symbolism instead of real safety. Right. That's the sort of, you know, want to feel good and look tough kind of politic uh, that might get someone reelected, but it has never actually delivered real safety. You know, our country incarcerates more per capita than just about any other country in the nation. If that was the way to safety, we'd be the safest country well, <laughs> on the planet. We, we put you in so, jail you and know, we'll we shoot you. See. We put you in jail and we'll shoot you. OK, <laughs> right to bare arms. And so that's where you're trapped at. Well, and, and, and we got to ask ourselves, what have we gotten for that, right? What have we gotten in reality? You know, when you look at what, what our public money goes to, right? And, and when we say public money, that's our money, right? Your money, my money, this is our money here in public systems. This is money that is chronically allowing crisis to become crime and then trying to arrest our way out of it. Why don't we start on the front end and really try and actually help people who are in crisis so we, so we can prevent most of the crime and violence that's happening. It's not that mysterious why crime and violence happens. We just don't do a lot about it. Right. And then we spend all this money on these broken, bloated systems. Cool. In their names, the untold story of victims' rights, mass incarceration, and the future of public safety. I'm speaking to Lenore Anderson. What are your future goals, Lenore? You know, you know, it's 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 tied to passion. It's tied to changing people's lives. It's tied to changing people's point of view. Yeah. And th- you know what? In 2020, I wanted just to get this out. You know, when George Floyd, because I want to make sure I get this out because I think it had to have an impact on the whole justice system. You know, this whole country was march heavy, you know, defund the police. All these things were put out there, and then the Republican Party used that to say that's why the country is high crime rate is going up. That's why police officers are quitting on the job. I know I'm asking two questions, but first ask answer your question about the future goal, and then we get back to the, the second questions, okay? Well, and they're, and they're kind of related. You know, we, we live in a really exciting time. I mean, you know, most people, if you turned on the TV during the last election cycle, there, there was a real, you know, resurgence of this sort of tough on crime law and order rhetoric. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it really didn't have an impact. You know, it didn't actually change a lot of voters' opinions. I think voters are wiser today than they used to be on this issue of criminal justice. And that means there's exciting change happening. So what we're interested in is, you know, what are the real solutions, right? If we if we can finally abandon this myth of mass incarceration as a pathway to safety, if we can start to accept that criminal justice reform and public safety actually go hand in hand, we can build some really great solutions. You know, there's uh, there's these things called street um, outreach uh, violence prevention workers, right? These are grassroots community members trained in conflict mediation that can help young people um, reduce uh, gun violence on the streets. It's having a huge positive impact. 
There's, you know, trauma recovery centers, which are helping underserved victims of crime get crisis assistance and get uh, mental health support. These are the kinds of solutions that we're building across the country. And what's so exciting about the future is that more and more people are seeing the wisdom behind these solutions. That's really what excites me the most. That's what we're trying to build toward. And I think that I think we're at a point where we can start to have a much more honest conversation about partnering with community instead of surveilling community, partnering with community to build the kind of solutions that we've been needing the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a book that um, changed my life. And I say that, I don't say that casually, because I think that when people say that, I mean, no, I'm not, you know, I am who I am. I am my age, but your point of view can be changed through information. This book will be passed around to some other people who are a little bit bigger than me, and I will encourage them to interview you and encourage them to get the word out about your book. It's that big to me, okay? It's such a great honor. And I, I appreciate it so much. And, you know, we um, we're just so we're so blessed to have people like you in the, in the role that you're playing and encouraging with the hope and the positivity. Um, you know, it, it brings me great joy to be in a conversation with someone who's such an inspiration to millions. So thank you so much. I appreciate you. And we talk soon. And again, I'm very sincere in their names, the untold story of victim rights for mass incarceration and the future of public safety. Very brilliant book. You should buy it. But more importantly, spread the word. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation with Noah Anderson. Thank you. You've been listening to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rushan McDonald. Always remember to lead with your gifts. Money Making Conversations Masterclass is a presentation of 3815 Media Incorporated. Historically, black colleges and universities have always helped black Americans pursue professional careers, earn graduate degrees, and advance their education. HBCUs meet the needs of low-income, first-generation students. Iron sharpens iron. Historical black colleges and universities sharpen your future. You want to talk about excellence? Talk about HBCUs. Talk about being the first black man to have a seat on the Supreme Court. Talk about managing over $30 billion in engineering and architectural design programs. Talk about being the first black woman billionaire. Talk about having 10 number one box office movies in a row. You graduate from an HBCU, you influence politics, medicine, entertainment. HBCUs represent black excellence. If you attend or are an alumnus of an HBCU, we want to hear about your story. The My HBCU Story digital library will allow current HBCU students and alumni to share their stories. Registration is open to everyone. More information is available at hbcucollegeday.com. Click My HBCU Story. Next, you can upload a photo. The photo can be recent or from when you attended your HBCU. Then, share your academic or social experience at your HBCU and how attending an HBCU changed your life. We also want to hear stories if you pledged a fraternity or sorority. The goal is to use your My HBCU story to promote and uplift the HBCU brand. Your HBCU prepared you for success, and now we want everyone to read about your Black excellence. More information is available at hbcucollegeday.com. You can click My HBCU Story 
way to share your story. At Thurgood Marshall College Fund, we believe where you are born shouldn't decide who you become. That's why we carry forth the legacy of Justice Thurgood Marshall, providing HBCU and PBI students with access and opportunity through scholarship, talent sourcing, upskilling programs, capacity building, and advocacy. The Thurgood Marshall College Fund is committed to changing the world one leader at a time. Who's next? Learn more at whosnext.tmcf.org. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations, Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversation Masterclass with your daily Minute of Inspiration. My guest today is actor, educator, activist, and entrepreneur, Lamont Rucker. He addresses how being authentic can benefit and lead the youth of today. It's your value and your understanding of your responsibility to serve, you know, mm-hmm. to serve young people. You and I serve one another. We love and support and encourage and empower and uplift each other. Mm-hmm. The branding is completely secondary. I believe mm-hmm. if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, if you're being who you're supposed to be, right. if you're walking and living in your love and your light on a regular basis, your brand will be shaped around you, not you having to try to be something you're right. not just because. Right. So I do my best to work from the inside out, not the outside in. Listen to this full interview with Lamont Rucker. It's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com. You can stay up to date with all new and exclusive Money Making Conversation Masterclass interviews by liking and following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Audible. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.